0: Sixteen of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast of feminism and history and women and politics and pop culture and
1: literally everything. Um, My name is Charlotte Lydia Riley. And I'm Emma London. And this week we're talking about complicated stuff.
0: Yes, we're thinking this week about um, questions about national identity and citizenship and belonging. And the reason we're thinking about this um, is because of the kind of ongoing Windrush scandal, which at the time at which we're recording this podcast has probably been kind of rum Well, certainly I think the first news stories uncovering some of the issues around this by Amelia Gentleman are probably a couple of months old now.
1: Yes. Didn't they start earlier than that? I think she might have been working on it since like October or something, yeah. but it became big news. Yeah earlier this spring
0: earlier earlier in spring so um we've been thinking about this a lot i think people in britain have been thinking about these issues more than they had been before um i think a lot of charities and migration groups and things very frustrated that people are just discovering some of the problems coming up here um and i think as historians um lots of historians are really actually a bit shocked at the level of misunderstanding and confusion that there seems to be around some of these issues that's been revealed by the Windrush scandal.
1: Yeah, um, I've been very taken aback by the, I mean, it can't really be described as anything but people being very blinkered by their mm-hmm. privilege.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's not just a lack of knowledge, it's it's ignorance on a, on a kind of deeper level, I think. Yes,
1: of just the fundamental rules of citizenship within empire mm-hmm. to start with. So I think, you know, for I'm sure certainly all of our British
0: listeners probably have been reading these stories and know quite a lot about um, Windrush and what's been going on. But as a kind of recap, well, as a kind of recap on the scandal, first of all.
1: Yes, we have quite a lot of listeners in the US and and other places in Europe. We've We've had a couple in Iraq. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And uh, various different places. So for people who haven't been kind of reading these stories, and I would urge you to check out the work of Amelia Gentleman, who's been reporting them for The Guardian. Mm. Um, she's been doing really important investigative journalism on on this topic. But for people who aren't sort of that that aware of what's been going on um, quite recently, or over the last few years, actually since Theresa May was Home Secretary, which is quite important um, and is an important context to this story, the British Home Office has had what's known as a hostile environment for migrants. Mm. Um, and one of the kind of ramifications of this policy of creating a hostile environment for illegal immigrants is that everybody's migration status kind of comes up for debate because the onus becomes on you to prove that you have a right to be in Britain rather than on the Home Office to prove that people yeah. shouldn't
1: be here. yeah and Every, More or less everyone is considered guilty before proven innocent when it comes to immigration status in Britain and has been since I mean Theresa May was the only Home Secretary during the um, coalition wasn't she so it's from 2010 onwards so 8 years is quite a long time when you consider immigration status issues
0: yes absolutely and of course you know and we'll talk in a moment about the long historical roots of this and there have been problems in Britain with ideas around immigration and with people's immigration and migration status and citizenship for a long time But the particular context of the hostile environment, which has led to it, for example, to a real um, kind of um, uptick, for example, in when you do any work. You know, like if I claim expenses from a university, I often have to show them a copy of my passport. Mm. This this kind
1: of thing, like a real kind of ramping up of anxiety around people's citizenship. I have annual contracts at the same university. Mm -hmm. I've had those for three years running. Every year I have to show them my passport yeah and they have to have a copy of my passport, yeah. which with each of my contracts, despite the fact that it's the same passport page uh-huh. absolutely so this um, which of... is obviously a very minor little detail, but it assumes something about people having access to passports in the first place yeah um and it I have a right to be in Britain because I'm an e u migrant uh-huh. so at the moment, I have the right to be in Britain, but there are obviously lots of people who get excluded yes. from these. Um, systems.
0: And the particular context of the Windrush, what's been sort of dubbed the Windrush Scandal although arguably it's not a scandal it's actually the system working exactly as it's supposed to by the logic of itself is that um, the so-called Windrush generation the the migrants from within Empire who came to Britain after the Second World War before the end of the 1960s um, are now increasingly being asked by the Home Office or by partner organisations of the Home Office By reporting groups um, and also by the police and various different sort of landlords and all of the rest of it. So, for example, the implementation of the right to rent policy, which is that landlords now have to ask for British citizenship or the right to be in Britain in order to Mm. rent out flats. This generation of people is being increasingly asked to prove their citizenship and prove their right to be in Britain. Now people who came to britain from any imperial territory between 1948 and 1962 have automatically the right to be in britain because everybody in the empire from 1948 to 1962 was a british citizen There is no difference legally in the status of somebody born in jamaica or born in um uh, born in Kenya or born in South Africa or born in the Midlands the Midlands or in London or in Scotland or in Northern Ireland or in the Republic mm. right They're, you know everybody who was within the British Empire from 1948 to 1962 had the right to live in Britain or indeed anywhere else citizen. in the Empire as a citizen and so many of the people who came to Britain between 1948 and 1962 do not have reams of paperwork proving that they have the right to be here, because they did have the right to be here. They didn't have to go through an immigration process, they didn't have to get visas, they didn't have to do anything like that. They had to
1: buy tickets and they had to arrive.
0: Yes. Even after 1962, between 1962 and 1968, so 1962 there's a, a there's a shift in the citizenship law and it becomes... Um, slightly harder for people to come to Britain essentially there is um, more connection between your right to come to Britain and having a job waiting here um, there are quotas to do with visas I have. Um, there, it, it gets kind of more and more complicated basically the British government and it's Labour and the Conservatives create an increasingly hostile environment
1: mm.
0: not the hostile environment but increasingly hostile environment for migrants and so um, yeah, the 1962 Commonwealth Immigrants Act So the 1948 is the British Nationality Act, right? Everybody within the empire is a British national from 1948 to 1962. 1962, the act is called the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, and it creates a separate category of citizen, which is citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies, (CUKCs), who are people whose passports are not directly issued by the United Kingdom government, and these people become subject to immigration control. Um, And so they need to have... um, visas or they need to have a job waiting for them or they need to have family in britain and then in 1968 there's another commonwealth immigration act and this sharpens the distinction between citizens of the uk and colonies who have apparently close ties with the uk and people who don't have close ties and these close ties are patrilineal so they are passed down from father Mm. father.
1: so that's quite a lot about ethnicity isn't it and the color of your skin so you're meant to be a um you meant to have a very close, can we call it, ancestry for someone who's basically mm-hmm. your your parent or your grandparent. But someone yeah. needs to be a direct uh, emigrant yes. from the British Isles to a Commonwealth country. Yes,
0: or they need to have got British citizenship before they gave birth to you. Yeah. And so the, the reason that this has impacted on the Windrush generation, um we'll talk about who this generation really is in a minute, Is that they are now being asked often by the Home Office or by employers or by people, you know, if they're receiving pensions or landlords to prove that they have the right to be in the UK or or even just to prove that they have been here consistently. So to prove that they have lived here, you know, if you um, are trying to get right to remain to live in Britain, you need to be in Britain for seven years. Mm. And so they're being asked for things like two pieces of documentation for every year that they've been here, electricity bills you know contracts all of the rest of it which is not material that ordinary people keep for every year of their life
1: to prove that they live somewhere that they have always had the right to live particularly not when it's 30 year old documents right yeah i'm all of a sudden very grateful that i didn't have a shredder for the first Mm. like 10 years i lived in this country i think so i have a stack of bank Mm -hmm. statements and things um in my attic yes that might be my saving grace one day
0: Absolutely, all of that document hoarding. And this kind of came to light when it's been shown that, for example, people... So the the big story was that um, a man was having, and it was being reported under a a pseudonym, uh, a man was being refused cancer treatment because he couldn't prove to the NHS that he was a British citizen, despite the fact that he was born in Jamaica, had come to Britain... You know, legally between 1948 and 1962 and had the right to be As a here. child. As a child he'd come here. And he was being refused cancer treatment by the NHS because he couldn't prove that he was a citizen because, of course, part of this is also bound up with anxieties about you know, NHS tourism and people coming here mm. to use youth healthcare and things. There's which also, is completely blown out of proportion. Yeah, which is incredibly ridiculous. And also is a, is a key public health issue. If you have people in Britain who have illnesses, of course the NHS has to treat them because it's a public health issue. right? Mm. Um, there's also been cases of people being deported... So, for example, um, people being deported, you know, quote-unquote, back home to Jamaica, but the Home Office booklet that is given to people has incredibly detailed information about how to survive or how to kind of fit into Jamaican culture, which clearly shows that they realise these people don't necessarily have a kind of home connection to these places. Yeah,
1: I think it's a booklet that's been prepared by an organisation for returnees in Jamaica, and it includes advice like... uh, pretend not to have a british accent. Yeah,
0: exactly. And like explaining cultural things which if you believe these people to actually be Jamaican you wouldn't bother to explain. Mm. There's also been cases of people who have returned back to for example Jamaica or other areas in the Caribbean and then haven't been allowed back into Britain. Yeah. So people who've gone home on holiday or who no, not gone home. People have gone to Jamaica on holiday or gone to a, attend a family wedding or something and then mm. weren't allowed to come back to Britain. They were they were told on boarding the plane back to Britain that that would be migration to Britain. Mm. Um, and, and actually cases of people becoming homeless and, um, at least one case we know of of people dying on the streets because yeah. they were unable to access state services despite the fact that they're, you know, all sinking into very, very deep mental health problems because of the obvious kind of massive mental health issues around suddenly having your citizenship snatched and denied.
1: Yeah. Because it does, citizenship is such a fundamental, basic human rights. Yeah. For a country that you live in, you don't necessarily have to be a citizen to be a member of society, but you have to be a citizen of somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And the part of the problem now is that you end up with people who are more or less stateless mm-hmm. within Britain. So, how do you prove? I mean, you could, you, if you have a Jamaican passport, then you could, you know, start the immigration process, mm-hmm. but no one has a Jamaican <laughs> passport yeah, exactly. because they're British.
0: The MP David Lammon, Lammy, who's the MP for South Tottenham, um, has been doing a lot, you know, uh, Tottenham has a high proportion of black British people, many of whom have Jamaican uh, backgrounds, heritage, or Caribbean backgrounds. The debate is often is often kind of occluded within Jamaican, but obviously mm. Britain had lots of different colonial um, territories in the Caribbean. Um, he's been really angry, I mean, sort of righteously angry about this, and has been talking about this a great deal, and trying to get the government to... You know, that basically, initially, the government denied there were any problems. Then Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, kind of said, at one point, she said, oh, it seems like we sometimes lose sight of the person in this <coughs> programme. So the whole system is meant to not be about people. Exactly. I mean, she was forced to resign, um, and theoretically. But again, the government has framed their response to this on having been found out so first of all they're trying to claim that this is a mistake it's not a mistake this is the this is the logical endpoint of the hostile environment this is what this policy is supposed to do Mm. people talking about this being a scandal or it going too far or look how you know probably you know look at the mistakes that are being made these aren't mistakes this this is what this policy is supposed to do it's Mm. supposed to criminalize people who have complicated citizenship identities which actually are not complicated historically um so David Lammy has been trying to get the government to kind of essentially U-turn on this policy and they have started to do so but in language which implies that they are kind of doing people a favour so they've talked a lot there's been lots of adverts now saying that you, you now will be granted the right to stay as mm. if you didn't always have the right to be here as if you weren't British no. and even very recently even in the last couple of days so we're recording this in mid-May and even in the last couple of days David Lamy um, has had constituents come to his um Constituents come to his um, surgeries in his, that he's hold, held in, in his constituency, and he's advised them to go and talk to. Um, immigration officials so they can sort of sort out their status and make sure they get to stay here and he had one particular kind of constituent elderly constituent who went to go and talk to the Home office and was met by police with handcuffs and was arrested
1: Mm. even
0: though he was you know going talking to them on the advice of his MP and even though he is British and has the right to be in Britain and we
1: have mentioned in previous episodes the detention system set up for people who are meant to be deported so it includes places like Mm Yarlswood which has been in the press a lot Mm -hmm. uh, because of the ill treatment of women it's it's a detention center for women and mm-hmm. children um, who are meant to be deported many of whom can't really be deported particularly not quickly and surely shouldn't many of them yeah. shouldn't be deported um, but it's an, in, an enormously cruel system mm-hmm. to lock people up while awaiting the final outcome of their yeah. applications
0: and it's the kind of the the in- the logic of this system just becomes completely arcane and, and circular. So, again, in the Observer recently, there was a story about um, an athlete from
1: Sierra Leone. Think,
0: yeah, uh, who had defected from a uh, defected, defected is completely the wrong word. He just hadn't flown back to Sierra Leone after mm. the 2012 Olympics because he was concerned I think about it's the getting, 2014 uh, Commonwealth. Oh, the Commonwealth Games, Games in Glasgow. Yeah. Yes,
1: because he was worried about um, Ebola. Yeah. Which was, you know, in full swing outbreak. He was he was concerned for his life, yeah. So he didn't get on the plane back, but he that was then found uh, by this observer reporter living on a park bench yeah. in um, one of the central London parks. In a
0: London park, he's called Jimmy Soronka, um, and he, yeah, he didn't he didn't want to return because of um, the threat of Ebola. It turned out that his adoptive mother actually died of Ebola. She she's a nurse and also almost all of his adoptive family had died actually and your sister is still alive mm. so this story has been going for a, for a few years because you know he was a, a star athlete who was mm. living in a park and kind of you know obviously homeless and, and without any kind of support or resources and the journalist who was writing the story you know said initially they were quite hopeful that they might be able to uh, they might be able to help him not least because on hearing about his plight you know lots of people responded really positively so the university of east london offered him a scholarship there were lots of um, sports facilities and things were offered him training Mm -hmm. so there was the hope that they might be able to find ways for him to sort of live within the system and also as the journalist pointed out you know there was no way in which it could be said that this athlete was kind of you know kind of being a draw on state resources he hadn't Um, you know kind of come and and he hadn't been given housing or access to the health service he'd been living in a park he hadn't kind Mm -hmm. of used any kind of British services and the story that was published a couple of days ago in the Observer was just again it just showed the extent to which the home office system is intentionally cruel that these aren't mistakes this is intentional so he was he was repeatedly kind of by independent groups, was found to have severe mental health problems, to be very traumatised, to have a reason not to return to Sierra Leone, but also um, was, you know, repeatedly kind of by, by different kind of committees and things, essentially given the right to stay in Britain. And at every point, the Home Office repealed. Mm. And not only did the Home Office appeal at every point, but the Home Office barristers also would always turn up to these hearings and immediately ask for them to be adjourned because they hadn't read the material. So it was just this... Really, really horrific system, and you know the Home Office spent so long appealing against them. But that by the time that Theronka got the right to stay in Britain, all of his ab- uh, attempts to access um, health, uh, mental health support had collapsed, and he had been deregistered from the system. So we had to start that process again. Yeah, he had a scholarship to study for a degree, and the Home Office refused to allow him to do any studying whilst he was appe- whilst they were appealing against the decision to let him stay. Mm.
1: It's both dehumanizing and completely inhumane.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it yeah, as I said it it demonstrates how in, how intentional this is, how much it's about. You know, Sierra Leone is he was competing in the Commonwealth Games. Sierra Leone is a a, a Commonwealth country. It's a country that Britain has a long relationship with. Mm. Um a really problematic and difficult relationship actually. Sierra Leone was initially created as a as a colony for freed slaves. Um and, you know, has
1: it's where some of these boats that we keep hearing about when the royal navy came and rescued Mm -hmm. slaves from ships by other nations they slaving nations when britain had abolished slavery yeah they plonked them off on the coast yeah sierra Leone uh
0: in Freetown, in the in the capital um but it it was it was one of those stories that you read and you think even as a historian who kind of works on these topics and knows about this stuff it was really you know deeply kind of in, like, sort of impressed on me how, how intentionally nasty a this is. It's an
1: absolutely horrific system, and it's, I can't, it's, it's a nightmare. I mean, mm-hmm. just to sit and think about what it's like to be in that situation, being trapped because you can't leave. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't leave, you should stay here mm-hmm. and be welcomed, but you can't leave, you can't do anything about it. You're just, you're at the mercy of a system mm-hmm. that is designed to be cruel
0: absolutely and it operates and it's designed
1: to treat you like a criminal until maybe finally that day you take the oath of allegiance to the queen and you get your citizenship but that is a very very long uh path you have to walk down and tick lots of boxes of before you qualify
0: and sort of ironically although again this isn't really ironic this is built into the system there is an idea that being british and having british citizenship And indeed, being a British subject of the Crown is partly imbued with a sense of history, right? Knowing your history, understanding the British history, and even kind of valuing and thinking, you know, positive thoughts about British history. There's Mm. supposed to be this sense that our citizenship is built on this kind of shared history that we have. Mm. But the policy is deeply ahistoric. Um, A lot of the time, people were talking about Windrush. So, you know, this is called the Windrush Generation because the Empire Windrush came from Jamaica in 1948. It came from. It's a specific ship. It's a specific ship that came from Kingston. Uh, in Jamaica and docked in Tilbury docks in Essex and brought with it actually people from from across the Caribbean and around 100 British people English citizens who were kind of returning home from Jamaica but you know the vast majority of people on the ship were Jamaican young Jamaican men who were coming to Britain uh, to help with the reconstruction of Britain after the Second World War many of whom had fought in
1: the Second World War yeah
0: many of whom had so had kind of connections to Britain maybe Mm. or had been here before or were coming here because there was you know an abundance of paid construction British Isles I suppose is what yes we mean, because Jamaica was part of the British, British Empire. Empire, the British Empire um but they were coming here to to work because there was you know good paid work available a lot of um you know there's lots of kind of building work and stuff but again they weren't invited here or you know there were jobs advertised in Jamaica but th- this has always been described um a lot of the media coverage of this has described this as being you know really problematic. These people are now being targeted because they were invited to come. They didn't need an invitation. Mm. It was their right to come here because of the British Nationality Act. Yeah. Um, and so the kind of very ahistoric understanding of how imperial migration to Britain happened and how this kind of increased crackdown on migration to Britain, from the empire and sparked by key incidents. So, the crackdown sparked by, for example, the 1972 uh, crackdown is, is sparked by the um, Idi Amin's expulsion of the Ugandan Asians mm. um, and anxiety about all. And those people actually did become stateless because Britain refused to accept them and they were expelled from Uganda. Yeah. So, there's these kind of moments where Britain starts to limit harder and harder its borders, increasing anxiety at home, people like Enoch Powell, politicians kind of being you know kind of trading on racism in order Mm. to build up constituency votes also going hand in hand with kind of increasing legislation on race relations you have the race relations act in britain in 1965 and 1968 which is supposed to create better relationships between people of different races in britain it's meant to
1: abolish racism
0: it is meant to abolish racism, which of course was always understood not to exist within the British Empire. Anyway, there was no colour bar in the British Empire. Famously, mm-hmm. America has segregation, but the British Empire is a you know a sort of federation of people of all colours and all all races and religions, supposedly, which is obviously untrue. Um, but it is one of the fictions of British imperialism is that there is no racism inherent in the system. This is why we talked about this a bit on the imperial nostalgia episode. This is why South Africa is so problematic for Britain. This is why Britain is so anxious when South Africa starts to implement apartheid laws from 1948 because as far as Britain is concerned, this doesn't have a place within a, a
1: multinational empire or commonwealth. Which is lovely because many of the apartheid laws built on uh, president from the British Empire yes. era, which ended in 1910 in yes. South Africa.
0: But South Africa leaving the Commonwealth in 1961 is extremely useful to Britain because it enables it to keep up this myth of a multinational Commonwealth and sort of all happy people mm. from all different races coexisting. And so, British, you know, Britain has this history at home of really, you know, a multicultural history. There's always been a there's always been a multi Britain's always been a multicultural nation. There's always been a black presence in Britain. It's always been a multi faith nation but it has this kind of very celebratory self-congratulatory history of this mm. and it uses this to construct a particular identity in the world today while simultaneously actually building its migration system and its citizenship laws on a complete misreading of that history mm. and on a kind of manipulation of that history and on the increasingly kind of difficult history of migration to britain yeah um so you uh, as a Non-British migrant <laughs> yeah. uh, to Britain, uh, as as we said earlier, uh, for the moment legal migrant through the EU. Yeah,
1: let's see what happens in less than a year's time. Um,
0: have also sort of encountered this, these ideas about citizenship in a different way.
1: Yeah, so I've been eligible for citizenship for maybe ten years, mm-hmm. maybe eleven years, uh, but I haven't applied, uh, partly because. From the moment I was able to apply, which I think was, must have been in 2007, mm-hmm. um, there have been tests that you have to do yeah. and uh, I would pass the tests, I mean I don't have to do an English language test because I've got English degrees mm-hmm. so um, I'm excluded from those, other people do, um, but you have to do an English history and culture test mm-hmm. which is a ridiculous idea. Uh, you also have to pledge allegiance to the queen mm-hmm. and pay money for it. And when I first was eligible, I think the fee was about five hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. These days, it's more than a thousand pounds more expensive than that. So, mm-hmm. it's about fifteen hundred pounds. Um, and you pay before you are granted citizenship. So, if your application fails, mm-hmm. if you fail one of, of the two tests, uh, you don't get your money back,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that is an extortionate fee.
0: That really
1: is. I really want someone to put in a freedom of information... Um, what's it called? Freedom like a, of information request. request for uh, the profits that the Home mm-hmm. Office must be turning on these this applications. Is something
0: else, actually, that I think David Lammy has raised in Parliament before. That obviously, for European citizens, that's the cost, right? You have the £1,500 cost yeah, of the test. Yeah. For many other people, they are also having to, in order to get the seven years of continuous living in Britain that you need to do before you can apply for citizenship, they're also having to pay visa costs.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and also Which th- are extortionate. Which are very, very expensive. Um, so there's been a campaign recently, for example, by USU, the uh, University and Colleges Union, to try to get universities to pay the visa costs of its staff because mm. British universities you know, really benefit from having international workforces and will claim often that they want to employ people from overseas, but almost none of them pay any visa costs whatsoever. Mm. Um, And if you're, you know, if you're kind of, well, particularly if you're moving from job to job where you need new visas, even if your old visa has not expired, you still need to get a new visa. So if you move from a job at one university to another university, even if you have space left on your visa, you have to have a new one because it's a new employer.
1: Yeah.
0: Or if you're moving from short term contract to short term contract, which is not uncommon in academia. No, it's what I've been doing. You can end up spending vast amounts of money on these visas. And also, if you're a non-EU citizen, you also have to pay now a surcharge for NHS um, use, which is, I think, about £700 a year. So there is a fee that you have to pay, even though you are working in Britain and paying taxes because you're not allowed to be here on a visa unless you are working here or paying taxes or unless your partner is earning enough money, Mm. which go towards the NHS, you also have to pay that fee and so i think you know people including david lammy have have sort of pointed out the incredibly high cost yeah. of
1: trying to get british citizenship in comparison to other countries it's it's mm-hmm. stark really extortionate um and i am an incredibly privileged immigrant mm-hmm. by all means i mean i th- i've i was able to put off a citizenship application because i don't politically agree with the system mm-hmm. I don't want to pledge my allegiance to a monarch. I'm, you know, a a little bit too much of a radical democrat for that situation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I actually have a an old acquaintance who is a Swedish communist, mm-hmm. all those radicals, who asked if he could pledge allegiance to parliamentary democracy, which to be fair is quite a stretch for a communist. Yeah, And they turned, they said no. I mean that's really making a concession for a communist. You would <laughs> think, <so>, <laughs> think so, but I think in the end he actually pledged allegiance to the Queen, as many people do without really thinking about it. But... There's
0: like MPs who have to pledge allegiance to the Queen when they're sworn in and some of them, Barbara Castle famously had her fingers crossed behind her back. Yeah,
1: um, You know, this is one of the kind of it's basically because that is part of my problem so there are two situations in which british citizens have to pledge allegiance to the queen Mm -hmm. one is if you join the army Mm -hmm. the second is if you become an mp and you're Mm -hmm. sworn into parliament the rest of you don't do it. Nope. It's not like in the US where they pledge allegiance to the flag every day in school. That mm-hmm. doesn't happen here. No one does it. Why are immigrants required to do something that is above and beyond what a British citizen well, would do?
0: This is also my problem with the culture and history test fundamentally, right? That it's asking for a level of knowledge. Like, you know, people are constantly talking about how little knowledge British people have of their own history, and certainly the way that history teach- teaching works in schools and I think this is arguably a good thing, you learn a lot about the history of other places as well as the history of Britain. We don't actually do that much British history in schools in Britain. So, you know, the things you have to do are... Nazi Germany. Nazi Germany, First World War, you do the slave trade, which which is obviously British history... Um, you do the First World War. Obviously, has a British component, but actually, a lot of the time, you study like Versailles and things like this. Mm. You know, you might study the Tudors or the Stuarts, but you might just as easily study, you know, the American Civil Rights Movement, for example, Martin mm. Luther King. Lots of people study. You know, there's loads of different things you might do. The Russian Revolution, and so British people, the the kind of the cultural knowledge you're supposed to have on this British citizen thing, like the life in the UK, booklet, mm. it's also asking. Well, it's simultaneously asking a more more kind of general historical knowledge about Britain than's ever quizzed by ordinary British subjects, but also the type of history they're trying to get you to memorise. Yeah. I think actually as a historian it might be quite difficult to pass that test.
1: Well, I bought the book when I, when my daughter was born because I was like, well, this is something I can do on maternity leave. I could just do the test and like, have it done and over with. Um, she was also born about two weeks before the Brexit referendum. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might have been a special impetus to do it. <laughs> But um, I, I think it would be fairly easy for me because mm-hmm. I can memorise things. Quite yeah, easy. I don't that's really, true. you know. But if you had to think, if you thought about any, of I the wouldn't. Questions. I wouldn't answer the questions like a historian would, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because I would just be. Uh, they are multiple choice. Mm-hmm. And I would have to scribble out all of the answers and just say, this is it's more complicated than that.
0: I think very famously one of the multiple choice questions, at least initially when the test was launched, was what year did women in Britain get the right to vote? Yeah. And the options were like 1850, 1900, 1918 or 1950. Mm. And obviously women did not get the right to vote in 18, 1918. Some women got the right to vote in
1: 1918. And this is the thing that you constantly... Because there are practice tests and I think we'll put a link to them. Yes. Um, in our footnotes for this episode so I a few weeks ago I was sitting with a, another Swedish friend of mine called Ina who um, also lives in London and has lived here for maybe three years less than me so mm-hmm. she's also been here for a very long time I think she is further along in her citizenship application than I am because i basically stumbled at the first hurdle mm-hmm. I need to find details of all the jobs I've ever had in Britain and how much money I've made from each
0: which as a freelance journalist oh.
1: I mean, the freelance journalism is quite easy, because at least I do do tax returns, but the jobs I had when I was working in a bookshop for years, when Mm -hmm. I was working as a waitress while studying, like, all of that stuff. I mean, I was on minimum wage, but the minimum wage in 2005 wasn't what it is now, so Mm -hmm. I have to, like, it's research. These are obviously very privileged problems for an immigrant to have, Um, there are many people who... Are in real trouble. I'm not in real trouble, and I probably won't be even after Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I am, I can always leave. <laughs> it's not like I would be going to a place that's worse. Mm-hmm. I'd be going to Sweden, which is, you know, a little bit more advanced. <laughs>
0: as, as, as we've said many times on this, on this podcast, a socialist utopia. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean,
1: with, with many with many real social problems, but still many problems, but. Probably about twenty-five years ahead when it comes to feminism and mm-hmm. equality uh, in society, at least. So, it wouldn't exactly be taking a step back. Um, but I, you know, I want to stay here, so I'll try to make it work. But um, so, Ina and I were sitting um, in my kitchen doing practice tests, mm-hmm. um, passing everything without really having practicing. But the questions are not. I mean, they require a lot of general knowledge about Britain which can be oddly specific Mm -hmm. um, it also requires you to be able to kind of guess and draw conclusions Mm -hmm. so um, my British born British citizen partner couldn't answer several of them I mean he probably wouldn't have passed the test yeah Um, one of the questions ask you to place the um, national days of the four nations mm-hmm. in order would you be able to do that
0: national days of the nations what well, so that's what so
1: northern ireland uh, which course. kind of counts as saint patrick's day
0: okay so 17th of march yeah uh, st david's day is the first of the first no seventeenth. of march so david's day is the first of march so st david's day first yeah
1: i thought st david's day was in february but still first um <laughs> saint then, andrews
0: uh may sometime and no and st george's is st george's april, is april in... 23rd of
1: april i know that so you know um, there's
0: a, a, it takes yeah, guessing I, have no it, idea. I, I knew
1: a couple of them and i was like well so this is the order then mm-hmm. uh i think it might have given you the order so that there were four alternatives and you just had to c- click the one right, that looked okay. correct which sort of makes it easier but if you have no idea yep um you know, and what days do we celebrate? St. Patrick's Day, I think, is easy for most British citizens. And it because... would be easy for, say, American citizens, yeah, right? But most but... people don't know when St. George's
0: Day is. No, no, definitely no, not. There are a small no group of people who vote
1: UKIP and yes. BNP who feel very up in arms about the fact that people don't know when St. George's Day is. But, yeah, <laughs> if people don't want to celebrate it, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, um, so there's there's loads of very specific knowledge being asked for in a very general way. There's uh the I the year of the union mm-hmm. between Scotland and England. There's a union between Wales and England, which happens a few centuries before. Mm-hmm. Uh the names of certain battles, the Battle of Culloden, for instance. I was yeah. saying before we started this recording that a lot of my Scottish history comes from knowing or having watched Outlander, the Outlandish Sort of history, time traveling drama. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> so I could pass those questions because of this very yeah. basic having watched stuff when I was on maternity leave.
0: This is Frederica Coco who wrote an article for the Financial Times about this because yeah. she is also was also taking the citizenship thing, and she said, you know, actually. This, this version of the test is slightly better than the previous one that used to have even more ridiculous information mm. in it so apparently the previous version of the test required you to know 49 websites and 36 different telephone numbers including the one for the National Academic Recognition Information Centre for the United Kingdom which is
1: like, what have you heard of Google people? Uh,
0: you needed to know the name of the wife of Sarko Muhammad the Bengali Anglo-Indian traveller and the street location of the UK's first Indian restaurant
1: um I'm guessing it's not Brick Lane.
0: I don't know where it is. um <laughs> she Also, but the, some of the questions are still completely ridiculous. So there's a question, for example, on one of the sample tests that's when was the time of growing patriotism? And they give you four options. Yeah. And the reason, and so the four options are the Golden Age. I don't know when the Golden Age is. Do they mean the Dutch Golden
1: Age? 1688. Uh, no. When's I think, the Golden Age? Well, Elizabeth, I was, Elizabeth I? We were thinking of the Glorious Revolution when we did that test. Uh, maybe. But, uh, the Iron Age, the Victorian
0: Age, or the Elizabethan period, right, as being when was growing growing patriotism. So the Golden Age is meaning, uh, meaningless. None of No one knows when that is. The Iron Age you couldn't be patriotic during the iron age it's not britain's not a thing <laughs> <laughs> like so it has to be either the victorian's or the elizabethans as as a contemporary historian i'd say yeah the victorian age is a, an age of growing patriotism right it's when the empire's getting bigger growing patriotism
1: but then the elizabethan era is when england becomes a uh... And Gloriana, and the yep. colonies are begun, and <laughs> so
0: the, apparently the way you know the answer to that question is that in the handbook included there is the sentence: "The Elizabethan period in England was a time of growing patriotism." Mm. So you know the answer to that question because at one point in the handbook it's been used explicitly, and you just have to remember that it's said then. Yeah, but obviously, you know, the question is meaningless, and and it tells you nothing about fundamentally about whether someone is British or not. Um, you know, she also had very. She also had concerns about the use of statistics in there as well. Mm. That They ask you a lot of statistical information that's not really backed up by anything. Mm. Apparently the London Review of Books described the Life in the UK test booklet as the funniest book in
1: the English language. It's hilarious. I mean, part of it is... Well, a lot of it is completely baffling. Mm. I, so I brought my copy to this recording and mm-hmm. we were flicking through it before. So the British Empire is, is dealt with in a paragraph and a half Which is incredible. The Second World War (laughs) is dealt with in, what, like four pages? There's also a whole page of uh, quotes by Churchill. Of course. Absolutely. Um, Which probably means that there are questions out there about when and where he 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 said various things. things. Uh, There's absolutely nothing about what Churchill did in Ireland.
0: We looked up Windrush, right, and it never actually mentions Windrush at all. And it says that there was migration to Britain
1: jamaicans were invi- this jamaicans invited it's jamaicans were invited, invited yeah. Yeah. Or people from the caribbean people were invited caribbean were invited to come to britain after the second world war which is wrong there's there's other historians have actually done pretty sort of investigative work on this book mm-hmm. and pointed out everything that's factually incorrect yeah. but that isn't you know so it doesn't give you any credit mm-hmm. knowing the actual yeah history or the historical facts it doesn't give you any credit if you say but it's more complicated than that on your Mm -hmm. form you basically have to just learn it by by Mm -hmm. word by word as it stands in the book and that privileges me Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I've always found that quite easy and Mm -hmm. this is obviously one of the reasons I did well enough in my you know in school and in my BA in order to Mm -hmm. actually be able to become a professional historian um that sort of throwing up of mm-hmm. stats and figures they stick yeah. in my brain So there are so many people out there who will be absolutely paralyzed by fear yeah,
0: absolutely and the thing is that fundamentally you know we've we've you can you know even at a very basic level i mean i don't really agree with border policing i think the concept of nations are always constructed you know nations as benjamin and uh, yeah, benedict anderson said you know they're, they're all imagined communities these are all constructed spaces even if you set all of that critique aside right? even if you come to this from a space of thinking that nations fundamentally are a good or at least a neutral thing and that people should have citizenship to live in places Mm. the fact that this is the way in which you have to prove your citizenship is on one hand nonsensical but actually on the other hand if you believe the stuff about construction it kind of makes sense Mm. you're being asked to memorise this entirely constructed image of what it means to be British and then regurgitate it I mean if nations are constructed in the first place then maybe that's, you know, maybe you're setting people up with a legitimate understanding of what it means to be part of a nation, to yeah. to fit into this completely bizarre, invented canon of useless information. Yeah. The booklet itself functions as a critique of the concept of citizenship and national identity in history. It kind of demonstrates how facile and stupid this is.
1: Yes, I hope to many but I fear that a lot of people don't question it. I think a lot of people... Just automatically assume that the tests have always been around, and they mm-hmm. haven't. This is yeah. this is a new Labour invention.
0: Yes, absolutely, and that's worth pointing out as well. That the hostile environment might be Theresa May, but this is this predates that.
1: Yeah, there's there's much longer tentacles back in history, and much more recent ones mm-hmm. than we would like to think. I mean, this is one of the reasons why Tony Blair is never going to be a favourite of mine. Yeah, and um,
0: actually, Gordon Brown had a had a particular kind of um, concern about creating a sort of English identity. Brown really wanted there to be more work on the... It was Gordon Brown who really wanted there to be more content on the curriculum about kind of creating citizenship and identity
1: and things. And Britishness, I suppose, from a Scottish perspective. Yeah, or yes, of course, (laughs) Britishness. (laughs) But Um, I think what I find really fascinating about all of this is that there's so much stuff that's being chalked up to being British when in reality they are just kind of fundamental western liberal values i mean i was talking a few episodes ago i think maybe in the imperial nostalgia episode which a lot of people have listened to um i was saying that my daughter's nursery like all nurseries in britain like Mm -hmm. all schools in britain have to teach british values yeah which is stuff like we're polite to each other Mm -hmm. we sort of make decisions together yeah uh, I mean, it's almost we wash our hands. <laughs> Basic but, you know, hygiene is a British value. It's basically the most fundamental things about being a nice person, and yeah. I, for one, cannot see how that is connected to a British.
0: Well, also thing
1: it is a general being yeah. a nice human being thing. So, on one hand, we are so invested. You know,
0: Michael Gove again is someone who has always been very invested in this idea of British values and Britishness, mm. right? And this was again something he wanted to imbue through the curriculum. Firstly, these values are. Universal among Mm. nice people. They're just being polite and kind. Mm. Secondly, the things that we try to claim as British, like, for example, liberal tolerance and humanitarianism and um, a kind of welcoming... You know, people often try to say that multiculturalism is a British value. Mm -hmm. And, like, yes, maybe that's a good aspiration to have, but the historical evidence demonstrates something very different, right? Like, actually being kind to other people historically is not something that Britain, as a state, has a good track record in mm. so we sort of simultaneously are using these values which are universal values and claiming them to just be British but we're also claiming values to be British which actually historically
1: have been incredibly controversial
0: yeah the, the empire was not I being kind I cannot imagine
1: people. what it's I mean I really hope that people are angry about this rather than being what is probably um more likely and completely understandable, absolutely distraught and destroyed by it, mm-hmm. but the fact that so all of these people who have ended up with um, citizenship status problems because of the hostile environment and the and the government going back on promises made in one thousand nine hundred and forty eight mm-hmm. That they are facing those issues at the time when this country is talking about inclusivity and the fact that the, the doors have always been open to mm-hmm. able people and mm-hmm. people who work hard and stuff, and it's it's fundamentally untrue. Yeah. I also feel like there's this. What really struck me when I moved here is that growing up in Sweden, Sweden is a country that wants people who live in it to become citizens. Mm-hmm. So you qualify after five years, you um. I think you have to pay like a £50 or the equivalent of £50 administrative fee when Mm -hmm. you send in your application, which, unlike the British citizenship fee, is something that you can actually see might be used for admin purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know people have been put off by the fee in Sweden, so it's obviously a problem there as well. But... It's nowhere near as extortionate as it is here, Mm -hmm. but they actually try to encourage people to become citizens so that they're part of society, that they can Mm -hmm. contribute, that they can vote, that they can, you know, feel like they're they're members and valued. Mm -hmm. In Britain, it's the complete opposite. You are not meant to become a citizen when you live here. You Mm -hmm. are meant to be here for a short while, and then you're meant to leave. You're not meant to drain, be a drain on the resources. Mm -hmm. Whereas you know, the the talk about people being able to contribute or being part of society or being, Mm -hmm. you know, valued members of society doesn't exist. No. So all that talk about British values being inclusivity and niceness Mm -hmm. and stuff, it's... It's not true. It's not true.
0: I have a poem, uh, which actually it largely draws on those feelings. (laughs) (laughs) So it's by a a female poet called M T S Starker. She was born in Lahore. Um, and moved to England, uh, no, to Glasgow. In fact, when she was less than a year old, so she's grown up in Britain. But she's Pakistani. Her, you know, her, she was born in Pakistan, and she's written a lot of poems about kind of identity and belonging. And she wrote a poem called "Minority," and the first line is, "I was born a foreigner." I carried on from there to be a foreigner everywhere I went, even in the place planted with my relatives. Um, she on all kinds of places and groups of people who have an admirable history would almost certainly distance themselves from me i don't fit like a clumsily translated poem like food cooked in milk or coconut when you expected ghee or cream the unexpected aftertaste of cardamom or neem and she talks about how poetry is a right that everybody has everyone has the right to infiltrate a piece of paper a page doesn't fight back so it's a way of not feeling like not necessarily not feeling like an immigrant but feeling like you belong like mm. it's a space that you can belong in she says perhaps who knows these lines may scratch their way into your head through all the chatter of community uh, immigrate into your bed squat in your home in your corner eat a, eat a bread so it's this idea of like the first line like I was born a foreigner I find really like it's it's a really clear stark line because you, you mm. know how can you be born a foreigner where where you're born is is where you're from but because she's born in pakistan and then comes to glasgow she has this sort of sense of being a foreigner everywhere mm. um and how kind of complicated that relationship is so i think it's a really good point we'll put a link to the full thing on on the website and in our footnotes
1: yeah so um we're probably going to come back to this yeah we, so i feel like this point. is a theme that is going to run through um and if anyone out there listeners have any suggestions for other things you want us to talk about when it comes to citizenship yes. or imperialism and stuff do get in touch um we're easily found on twitter where we're Mm -hmm. at K pod we've also got an email address and stuff you can find us on our website and and emailed us through that um but that's it for today
0: yeah we do have some recommendations we do have
1: recommendations Uh, which which are quite they're not really with theme (laughs) no they're
0: just they're just new recommendations in the spirit of the podcast we like to recommend something every week so we thought we'd recommend some more podcasts for you to listen to what have you got so I have a history podcast but an American history podcast which I'm really enjoying listening to it's actually um, so it's a podcast you know how sometimes they're kind of like a a discrete podcast that tell a specific story yeah and it's one that's finished so i'm working my way through the episodes at my own speed it's called slow burn it's a slate podcast and it's about watergate oh and yeah. it was started the first episode is i was worried it was going to be very heavy-handed with the analogies between trump and nixon and it's not really the first episode kind of says look this is why this is an interesting topic to think about now um, but it's just a really well-made history podcast that interviews a lot of people involved, and though it's presented by a man, he interviews a lot of women, women female historians or women who were um, kind of involved in the various different things going on. He he has quite a, few, a lot of female voices on
1: it, so I think it's a good
0: example of a history podcast from that perspective.
1: Maybe our theme is American podcasts then, mm-hmm. because I'm going to recommend uh, one called Creating Your Own Path by... Mm. Um, a woman called Jennifer E. Newman, um, and it's actually on hiatus at the moment. So mm-hmm. I think the, the final few episodes were uh, broadcast in November or December last year. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, and it's quite different. It has nothing to do with history. It's more about creativity, and it's people working in the creative industries in various ways. So she interviews mm. artists, designers, graphic designers, um, anyone who sort of works creatively, many of whom work for themselves. Mm so freelancers, about their practices and how they've come to doing, to do what they're actually doing at the moment. And I started listening to it because one of my internet acquaintances, mm-hmm. Andit Meyer, um, who lives in Paris and has an excellent uh, blog and otherwise internet presence, um, was on it last summer. And it's actually... It was one of the main spots for making me actually pull my thumb out and start this podcast mm-hmm. with you. Because <laughs> we'd been talking about it for a long time, but yeah. then I spent last summer's jogging sessions listening to what people do creatively. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, just, 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 I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so we just started. Um, so we've got Jennifer e. Newman to thank for a little bit of that. And um, a lot of the episodes are very good. It can be a, very, a little bit American in, in sort of, where people actually talk about creating their parts in a way mm-hmm. that might make sceptical British people recoil a little bit. But um, aside from that, and that's quite sweet anyway, but mm-hmm. um, aside from that, it's it's it can be very inspirational particularly for those of us who often sit at home on our own yeah working on things yeah um and thinking about how other people do stuff so cool. i'm going to recommend that creating your own path um and we're going to put links to everything that we talked about on our website and as we always our, do and
0: in our footnotes so sign up for our newsletter so that you get our footnotes for this and every one of our podcasts yes uh, you can find us on the internet at Pod, as we said earlier you can find us on our website um i think our next episode might be a world cup themed episode yes uh, we're going to be talking about all things football yeah so that will be very exciting um <laughs> so uh yeah until then um bye bye,
1: bye.